0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Because like the Lord, when he arrived in Jerusalem, Paul himself is going to be misunderstood, falsely accused, and he's going to end up in the hands of the Romans due to the hostility and opposition of the Jews. And so he, he is sharing in the sufferings of Christ, as, as Paul will write elsewhere. And how Paul responds to this opposition and hostility demonstrates the importance of two primary things. Honoring conscience for the unity of the gospel and loving those who blindly oppose the gospel. The two main things I want you to see today is honoring conscience for the sake of the unity of the gospel and loving those who blindly oppose the gospel. And what we're going to see in this whole account <clears throat> is the, the tremendous correspondence between what Paul has written to the churches at Galatia, Corinth, and Rome, which he's already written those letters, and how he was living And you'll see there's a consistency. In other words, Paul practices what he preaches. And this is a glimpse into how he applied the things he told those churches. For example, to the church at Corinth, Paul said, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To the church at Rome, Paul said, We are joint heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. To the church at Galatia, Paul has written, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And to the church at Rome, again, he also had said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul wrote all those things. What you're going to see here is Paul lives all those things. That's what he's doing here, that and more. And because we, if you're a Christian, we too are called to follow in the footsteps of, of the Lord, the suffering servant, this is very instructive. And what we learn from it primarily is this. We learn that when following the Lord, we may be called upon to honor the conscience of others in order to maintain the unity of the gospel and peace. And we've done some of that in this last few years. And secondly, we learn that we are, as we follow the Lord, we'll be called at times to love those who blindly and maybe even violently oppose the truth of the gospel. He is their one and only hope. And we will at times have to uh, lovingly confront opinions, false religion, human philosophies with the truth. And that may ignite their hostility. But it's it's only the truth that sets people free. And Christ himself is the truth. That we present. We are presenting a person. And as we live with Christ and follow him, therefore we at times will honor the conscience of others in order to maintain the peace that we have in Christ and even <clears throat> love others. Learn to love those who violently oppose the gospel. Well, it all begins in verse 17. Let's look at that. Paul arrives and says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. It all starts out really well. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. These are the elders of the mother church in Jerusalem. James is the brother of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And after greeting them, this is Paul, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's saying, these are the things God did. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Let's stop right there for a minute it all starts really good uh, they arrive at Jerusalem they're gladly received Paul recounts the evidences of God's grace uh, he glorifies God he doesn't take glory for himself and this self-effacing report this humility that he shows in exalting what God's doing encourages the Jews there, the believing Jews and James and the elders they joined Paul and they praise God with, uh, with him. And that's a very, very healthy sign when you uh, can praise God for what he's doing through others. And that's what this happened right there. So it started out really, really good, but uh, one thing stands out immediately, and if you were to read uh, of the whole account, you'll see that there's no mention of the offering. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? He was bringing a gift, a love gift from the churches in Asia. Those are the people who are with him when he arrives. Luke and representatives from all these churches. But Luke says not a single thing about the offering, the love gift, and how it was received. It's very odd because that's why Paul was going. It was very important to him. He's been talking about it. And he even wrote the following to the church at Rome. And if you wanted to follow, you could turn to Romans chapter 15 if you would, if you want, in verse 25 and following. He had told them, I long to get to Rome. That's my plan. And then he says, at present, however, Romans 15, 25, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. He's talking about money, support. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that is, the Messiah is from the Jews, they ought also to be of service to them, to the Jews, in material blessings. Paul was always looking for a way to stress the unity now in the new people of God between Jews and Gentiles. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this, meaning bringing the gift to Jerusalem and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. That was his goal, Rome and then Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then he asked for prayer. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Holy Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. What for, Paul? What do you want us to pray for? Verse 31. Here's some insight. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Well, Luke doesn't tell us whether his ministry was acceptable to the saints, but he does tell us that there was a lot of hostility awaiting Paul in Judea. Well, that's what happened. Things would change, and it begins with this conversation with James. After all this exciting praise and such, verse 20, back in Acts 21, when they heard it, they glorified God, and let's see what it says now. He says, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed? What's he saying? He's saying, it's great what God has done in the nations, Great what he's done among the Gentiles. We praise him. But, you know, God's been doing stuff here too. God's been doing a lot of things here in Jerusalem. There are thousands of Jews who now believe in Jesus, the Messiah. And then he says the following, and they are all zealous for the law. Thousands of Jews. He doesn't say zealous for Christ. Zealous for the mission. Zealous for... For the gospel to reach the nations. They're all zealous for the law. And that probably already sent a shiver up Paul's spine. <laughs> Thousands of Jews. Well, what does this signify? What does it mean? You notice how quickly James changed the subject. Began so good. Praise God for what he's doing out there. But there's a problem here, Paul. Paul. Here he goes, verse 21. All these thousands of Jews that are zealous for the law have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. That means believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. You teach all the Jews everywhere to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Well, um, Paul here's this bad news. Um, His reputation has been hurting in Jerusalem. (laughs) They think he's uh, anti-Jewish traditions and so forth. But of course, this is not true. Uh, If you know the story, Paul never demanded, he never taught that Jews, Christians or not, believing or not, had to abandon the Mosaic customs, uh, such as circumcision or the rites or uh, special diets or days. He didn't teach that they had to, he taught that believing Jews were free to practice them if they want, but they must not think that they add anything to their standing with God at all, nor that they're necessary. And he taught that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, that have come to believe that they are not under the law, they do not have to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Don't need to enter into the old covenant in order to be a member of the new covenant. The old covenant now has been fulfilled, you see. And so he said they do not need to practice these sorts of things. Again, Jewish believers, there's a long history. You want to keep circumcising your children and so forth. Observe Sabbath as you did. Fine. Don't make Gentiles believers do that. Don't anyone think it's necessary. Don't think that it adds anything or merits anything before God. That's what he's been teaching. He says, for example, uh, in Colossians uh, chapter 2 and verse 16, he's, this is the implication of what he said earlier in Colossians. And he says that in the book of Colossians that if you're a Christian, he says you are complete in Christ. <laughs> you have all you need in him. And in, and in Christ, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, and you are complete in Him. Therefore, verse 16 of Colossians 2, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. He's talking about the dietary laws and so forth, or regard to a festival, the various Sabbath festivals, be it Pentecost, be it Passover, or a new moon, or a Sabbath Let no one judge you in these things. Why? These are a shadow. They're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The reality is here. There's no need to do those things. Don't let anybody judge you if you're not doing those things, is what he was telling the Gentiles. And if you remember, he had already gone to Jerusalem in Acts 15 and had to work this through with the the church leaders in Jerusalem. They had to answer the question what do we do with the Old Testament law of Moses, the old covenant standards and the new covenant believers, these Gentiles who are coming to faith? And Peter stood up and gave a great testimony. You remember, he finally argued and he said, listen, <laughs> we haven't been able to bear this yoke all these centuries ourselves. Why are we going to put them on them? We are convinced, says Peter, that, th- that they are saved or we are saved, he said, just like they are. And that is through faith in the blood of Christ alone, and that's it. But then they said, what are we going to do then about all these Jewish believers who are offended by some of the things that these Gentile believers still do? And he said, well, let's, let's agree on some things they'll, they'll have to avoid. And, and, and so James makes clear now that Paul is back that they haven't changed their view. Look at verse 25. He affirms Paul. He says, as for the Gentiles who have believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment, That they should simply do these things. Abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols because that's really offensive to a Jew. And from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Um, And that's the same things that they agreed on in chapter 15. So what James is telling Paul is, look, we haven't changed our view, but we think you need to do something. Uh, everyone's against you. Everyone thinks you're telling everyone to avoid everything having to do with Moses, including uh, believing Jews. So what's the solution? Well, here's their plan. Here's the plan they share with Paul. Verse 22, what is then to be done? They will certainly hear, you've come. Everyone's gonna hear you're here. (laughs) Here's what you should do. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men. These would be Jewish believers in Jesus, okay? We have four men who are under a vow. It's a voluntary decision. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. All this is according to their, 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 their Old Covenant tradition understanding. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what you've been, they've been told about you, but that you yourselves also live in observance of the law. Just join them in these, in these rituals and uh, everyone will understand that you're you're not you're not all against us, you know. Well, you have to understand the, uh, some things as background. First of all, it, it was customary. It was customary when a Jew would return to Jerusalem from abroad. Uh, from among the, the major cities with the Gentiles and so forth, that they would have to regain ceremonial purity. You know, So if you went to San Francisco, when you come home from San Francisco, we're going to clean you up, okay? So you go through this ceremonial purity uh, rite, and uh, that's what they were asking Paul today to do. It was a seven-day ritual of purification. Paul had to do this before he could even accompany the four men in their Nazarite vow. Okay, he himself needed to be purified. And so this included reporting to one of the priests and being sprinkled with water, the water of atonement and on the third day and the seventh day. Uh, and this was not the same, not the same as the Nazarite vow. So I don't think Paul joined them and, and, and took the vow uh, with them, but he needed to be cleansed to even help them complete their vows, you see. He couldn't go into the temple with them until he did that. And verse 26 tells us that's, that's what he did. Uh, verse 26 says, Paul, Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled. In other words, when the de- third day and the seventh day and all that would be done for him. And the offering presented for each one of them. Now, the, the Nazarite vow that these four men were doing was a voluntary vow of devotion, and in addition to shaving their heads, uh, uh, they would burn their hairs uh, at, the front, uh, at the entry of the temple uh, uh, and they would bring their offerings. And Their offering was very expensive. It was an animal sacrifice offering. It involved two lambs and a ram. Two lambs and a ram and it also involved loaves and cakes and meal and drink offerings. This was very expensive. It was very difficult for the poor and why did Paul bring an offering to Jerusalem? because the church was poor there was a lot of poverty in the in the Jerusalem church and so what does Paul do he he does it he's going to pay for uh the vows of all four of these men and he himself undergoes the purification process ritual so that he could join them in as they complete their Nazarite vow now here's the question that everyone wrestles with did Paul make a huge mistake here <laughs> did he blow it Is he he compromising the very message that he preaches by doing this, by going through this whole process? I know that some think so. Some say, how could he who preached that we can only be cleansed from sin through the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice of Messiah, how could he then go through this purification ritual with water and and then join these four men in the sacrifice of animals at the altar in the temple when he's already placed his faith in the final sacrifice for the purification of sin. So a lot of people here will say, you know, Paul just really blew it here. Uh, but remember, I think you should remember several things. Uh, first of all, Paul himself already took a Nazarite vow a few years earlier in chapter 18. It was okay then. He's already, again, he's already, uh, again, He's okay with practicing some of the rites as long as you understand it. it is really symbolic of what Christ has done. It really isn't doing anything per se because your faith is in Christ. But Paul knew something else too. He understood that there are many believing Jews, that is Jewish people who believed in Jesus, who were still conscience-bound to practice these traditions. They they believed in their conscience they needed to still circumcise children, observe the Sabbath as they did, go through the feasts as they did, and, and so forth. Uh, some of them practiced still dietary laws, avoiding things, sacrifice to idols, and so forth. Uh, Paul knew that there was many believing Jews whose conscience were still bound to these things. And why is that? Well, listen, the, the Jews were caught in a sea An ocean of unprecedented change more than a thousand years of tradition of going through these things these are the things that identified them as Jews and they thoroughly believed that that this was given to Moses and God inspired these these commandments and truly he did and many of them would have died for these things But they've been fulfilled now, you see. And they were struggling with that. And all these things that identified them as God's people was being abrogated, was being set aside, you know, by these Gentile believers who were coming in the church. And some of them, some of them just couldn't handle it. Peter couldn't handle it. Remember, he struggled having a meal with the Gentile entering into his house. They were still working through this. And so Paul knew this and he understood that. He understood that there were Jewish believers who, who, who felt that way about the Sabbath, that it needed to be kept the way they were doing it before as Jews, and he knew there were some who thought you still could not eat meat sacrificed to idols because that meat is unclean. Well, it's unclean by the old covenant standards, but that covenant's over, you see. But he knew people were still like that. And that's why he wrote to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 14. Uh, he wrote these words, when he When he contrasts these the two points of view, Romans fourteen uh, verse one, he says, "As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables." now to be to be to be understood, Paul's not comparing a vegetarian diet to, you know, a some other sort of protein diet. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who will not eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols versus avoiding that and eating vegetables only and so forth. He says there's someone who thinks you can and someone who thinks you can't. In in the same chapter, in verse 4, he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, he's saying, who are you to judge him? Because in his conscience, he believes he has to do this. One person esteems one day. Now he's not talking about diets. Now he's talking about days, right? Sabbaths and festivals. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Every day is the day the Lord has made. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind, he says. In verse 13, he says, therefore, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then he gives his own opinion. Verse 14, his own position. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Right? Those laws all ended. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Because <laughs> now you'd be going against your own conscience, you see. And so Paul has been dealing with this already. He wrote the letter to the Romans before he ever arrived at Jerusalem. He knows that there are many, many a Jews whose hearts are, whose consciences are still bound to these things. And the book of Hebrews has not been written yet. This is about 57 AD, Hebrews was probably written around 64 or a little later, and the temple is still standing, and the offerings are still being made, and so forth. And I think what's happening here is that this is that time of transition, and the Lord spoke about it, and the disciples and the apostles had to work their way through it. When the old covenant comes to an end, and the new covenant comes in vogue, right? Right? And uh, they're wrestling with these experiences. And God in his mercy gave time, you know. He He gave Israel some roughly 40 years before he leveled the temple. He gave Israel some 40 years to work through this, unbelieving Israel, time to repent that they they rejected the Messiah, but he was giving Christian Jews time to work through the fact that this is all fading away. And finally in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, there is no sacrificing at the temple because it's gone, you see. And so Paul knows this about these people. And so if the conscience of thousands of believing Jews told them, they must continue these practices, and they think Paul is stirring things up everywhere and telling uh, everyone that no one should do these. Paul said, "I'm going to honor their conscience and show them that that's not what I'm doing. I'm going to partake in a standard ritual that uh, we all know about." Uh, and in his mind, he could do that. His conscience, it's fine. He didn't think it had added anything. He didn't think it was necessary, but it was symbolic of the cleansing he already had in Jesus Christ. He would do it, what? He would do it for the sake of peace in the church of Jerusalem. As long as, as long as everyone understood that this does not contribute in any way to your standing with God. In fact, to the church of Galatia, Paul would say that circumcision isn't anything. And uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. But what really matters is what? A new creation. Being a new creation in Christ. That's what matters. And so no, all this to say no, I do not think that Paul compromised here. I do not think that he, that he messed up the message that he was trying to preach. I think he was a man who loved these people, loved the church, loved the unity of Jew and Gentile, loved what that pictured and he was willing, in this case, to bend over backwards uh, and set aside his own understanding of his liberty, to honor the conscience of those Jewish Christians in order that he might main, maintain peace. And in addition to that, in addition to that, maybe Paul had an evangelistic goal to, in his mind, too, not just the believing Jews and keeping peace with them, because this also fits right in with his policy of becoming a Jew. To the Jews right as to those who were under the law I became as one under the law that I might win those who are under the law Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 9 and so maybe Paul was hoping for that too maybe in his mind he's thinking I'll keep peace I'll show the believing Jews that I'm not out to 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 make them leave all their traditions but I'll also maybe open the door with unbelieving Jews when they see that i'm not a anti-moses guy <laughs> when they and they give me a chance to hear that's what he's trying to do here so don't miss here when you try and figure out what paul's doing don't miss fundamentally his motivation of love for these people his willingness his love his desire to maintain peace and uh, this i got to i got to think it ached him when he was going through some of it don't you <laughs> It's the guy who wrote uh, Galatians, the guy who wrote Romans, right? No one's justified by keeping the law and so forth. Circumcision means nothing, you know. And he goes through this, submits himself to convey a message and clarify things and maintain peace in the body. Um, He didn't say like some of us might have said at a moment like that. Forget them. They don't don't know. They don't understand. Why should I go through this? Let them grow up and learn something, you know. Now, he, he, he loves the weaker brother, because in his mind, the weaker brother is the one who doesn't understand that, that Christ has set us free. And so he loves the weaker brother and sets aside his liberty in Christ, uh, his freedom. Now, you and I are going to be called to do that in our walks with Jesus. And our understanding of liberty and freedom must be different than the liberty and freedom that's spoken about in our culture. Uh, Liberty and freedom is a big topic right now, not at all just because of what's happening in in Europe and people fighting to be free and maintain their liberties, but liberty and freedom and what it means in this culture is also a big topic. Remember, I'm just emphasizing again that culturally speaking, we're in a time uh, where the great philosophy of our culture today is the sovereign individual. The sovereign self. Where all authority resides in in the individual and his or her opinions or thoughts about everything. And anything that comes from the outside is an imposition. It's a narrative, a false narrative trying to destroy their liberty and their freedom. That's the time in which you and I live. And so in the world today, in this culture, freedom means this. Freedom means I am free when I am free from all impediments to think and do whatever I want. As long as I don't hurt anybody. So far, they're still adding that little part there. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Let me say it again. How does the culture of the sovereign self define liberty and freedom I'm free. I'm only free when I am free from all impediments to think and do as I want. Whatever I want. And so it's primarily freedom from and freedom from any uh, transcendent standards such as there's a creator and and so forth. Christian liberty, Christian freedom, of course, is something different. It is is Christian liberty, Christian freedom, the liberty that Paul has set aside is something given to us, something granted to us through our union with Christ, our Savior, and he sets us free from something, but also to something. Christian liberty is not just freedom from, it's freedom to or freedom for. Is there freedom from in Christ? Absolutely. We're set free. Through our union with Christ, by believing in Him, we are set free from the consequences of sin, from the bondage of sin. We're set free from the judgment, the condemnation for our sinfulness. We're set free from the wrath to come on the day of judgment, and we're set free from the bondage of sin. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, says scriptures, and we lived according to our fallen, twisted human passions. And, and, and that's what governed us, and, and we, we have been set free from that by being united to Jesus through our faith with Him. And we've been set free to something. Not only free from, but free to or free for. And what is that? What are we free to? We are free to be, to desire and be what God has designed us to desire and be the new humanity, the, the, the Christian is a new creation which is a restoration of the original creation and beyond, right? We are free to desire now, finally, to desire and do what God has designed us to want and do as human beings. And what is that? What is that? Well, we're told. What sums it all up? We're free to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. On this, on those two commandments, hangs the entire law. And before you knew Jesus, before you were united to him, you you were in bondage to the things, your own passions, your own desires. You did not know God, the true God. You could not love the true God. And now you can know him and begin to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and fulfill humanity and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is free in Christ. He is free from these traditions. He does not need to to go through ceremonial cleansing in the temple. He doesn't need to pay for Nazarite vows. Uh, Christ has set him free from that, but he is free to love his neighbor as himself. He's not just free from, he's free to. And he realizes that this is one of those times when I'm going to set aside my own liberty so that I can... Love my neighbor, right? His brothers, Jewish brothers, and make peace. Keep peace. Maintain the unity of the body in the bond of peace, that peace that comes from the Holy Spirit, you see. Now, that's what, that's what you and I are, are called to do as we follow in the footsteps of the Savior, setting people ahead of ourselves, and I know that makes us uncomfortable at time, right? Uh, Honoring someone else's conscience when it's critical and it's time to make peace, to promote peace. Some struggle with this, but the Lord calls you and me to be flexible about our liberties. Boy, was Paul flexible. The man who who wrote Galatians and Romans goes to the temple, (laughs) goes to the temple and goes through ceremonies. Why? Because he loves his neighbor and the body of Christ. And so he sets apart his own liberty. And you and I are called to do that with matters of conscience. Matters of conscience, not essential doctrines of the Christian faith, right? And the essentials, unity, right? But here when it comes to differences, we should have charity and at times set aside our own preferences, you know. Um, and then also, like Paul was probably hoping to reach unbelievers, we're called to do the same. You may find it necessary at times to adapt to the ways of another group for the sake of reaching them. People of different cultures are teeming in the Bay Area. And uh, you at times are going to be called upon to build that bridge with them to share Bring Christ to them to get outside of your comfort zone and begin to minister the gospel. And when you do these kinds of things, you know what happens? Uh, Your life can get a little constricted, a little tight. Both emotionally, how was Paul feeling in the temple? Well, we're not told, but we can imagine it. Both emotionally, you can feel, I I really don't like this, and, and maybe circumstantially, things could get, bad people judge you for these things Uh, people misunderstand you and and but this is part of what it means to follow in the footsteps of the Lord follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant we are joint heirs with Christ says Paul granted if we also suffer with him and follow him and we've already heard that there's times we have to graciously Bear with with difficulty or persecution, misunderstanding, hostility, even for doing good, for doing good. We heard read from Peter by Chris. I read again from 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, this is what Peter says um, in verse 19 and following. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Well, if you are a Christian, you've been called. You've been called, you've been called to the forgiveness of sins. You've been called to union with Christ. You've been called to belong to the family of God. You've been called to a a better hope. You've been called to the resurrection of the dead, but you've also been called to this. You've also been called to this, to follow in the footsteps of the Lord, seeking to do good, and maybe suffering because of it. He says... On the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, to live to righteousness will involve also suffering as he did for you to bring you to this place where you can have your sins forgiven and know that you're loved by God. So it's part of our our calling, beloved, uh, to honor conscience for the sake of peace. And follow in the Lord's footsteps. Now, how did things turn out for Paul? Not too good. <laughs> well, let's see what happened for Paul. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, remember there were Jews here. They're from. Some of them are from Ephesus, it looks like. They stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everywhere, everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, meaning the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. When you hate someone or you hate something, you never think the best about them, right? So they presume that he brought this man in. Remember, these are, these are men from, from Ephesus where that great riot took place over this kind of stuff. And so they see Paul with a Greek, and they even know his name, and they figure he took him in the temple. Paul would never do that. You know why? Because the punishment was death. For a Gentile to go in the temple area Paul wouldn't want his friend to be killed right (laughs) so no no Paul wouldn't do this but they stirred the whole city up verse 30 and the people ran together they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut and as they were seeking to kill him they didn't want to do that inside the temple how nice let's you know let's kill him in a not-so-holy place you know (laughs) Uh, So they pull him out, they seek to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. The Romans had a lot of soldiers in a castle right there, the castle of Antonia, real close by because Jerusalem was always, always, always just one spark away from complete riots, so... So they were ready for this. He took soldiers. The centurions ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. How nice. The police are here. We've got to stop killing him. So verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. This would be fulfilling Agabus' prophecy of earlier that he'd be bound. Bound with chains. Two of them. Feet and hands. Some people point out that, well, Agabus said the Jews were going to do this, but if the Jews were the cause of this, and that's why the Romans had the authority to do that to him. So it's not that Agabus gave some fallible prophecy. It's that that was the intent of the prophecy. So he's chained now. Just as was prophesied, and he tried to find out what this man had done. What had Paul doing? Verse 34, some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts... Because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. It's like a football coach at the end of a Super Bowl, right? The winning coach, right? Carried on top because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Away with him! Sounds like another man who was in Jerusalem, right? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, said the crowd. So here's Paul in this, in this condition. Now, I want you to see a couple of things. One, this does not signify or mean that their plan of keeping peace and Paul's desire of keeping peace was a disaster because these aren't those believing Jews. These are the unbelieving Jews. We don't know what happened with the believing Jews. And maybe seeing Paul supper so much for the gospel which supposedly they believe all the more help them understand that things are changing but this is not them you see this is the unbelieving Jews and when is this this is 57 AD it is May not, not too long from now and it is just before Pentecost one of the great feasts that resulted in hundreds of thousands of Jews crowding into Jerusalem, you see. And these were Jews from all over the region, and they apparently included some from Ephesus who already had it out for, for Paul. They'd been following him from one town to another. Uh, Josephus would, would exaggerate sometimes. He was a Jewish historian. He said up to two million Jews were there. That's, that's just probably too many. They don't really fit, but there was still a lot, a lot of unbelieving Jewish people here and this is what happened, you see. Because always in Jerusalem, especially at times of these feasts, there was always this undercurrent of hatred and, and hostility towards Rome that we have to carry out our, our beloved festivals under the thumb of Caesar, you see. And so there was, it was always a powder keg during the festivals, right, ready to blow and man, it blew in Paul's face, didn't it? But what I want you to see now is his love for these people who so violently oppose the gospel. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said that the he is Paul. Paul said, do you know Greek? Greek was the lingua franca of the world. He said, do you know Greek? And then the... Uh, Tribune answers, are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? You know, uh, the, the, the grammar there implies that he expected a positive answer. That's the way it's written. So he's, so he's not saying you're not, he's saying, I, I, I'm thinking you're the assassin, aren't you? Uh, who, who, who caused this uproar, and Joseph talks about this great... Uh, thing that happened at the hands of an Egyptian and he, um, he had fled and escaped. And so I think the tribune thinks he's back and I got him. <laughs> I got that Egyptian that caused all this problem and Paul replies, verse 39, look, I am a Jew. <laughs> I know it doesn't look like it when all my other Jews want to kill me, but I am a Jew. From Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, beg you, permit me to speak to the people and when he had given him permission maybe one maybe he thought if i let him talk i'll finally hear what's going on i'll figure out what happened here he gave him permission to talk and paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the hebrew language or dialect as the word probably aramaic saying brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I will now make before you. And he presents his apologia, his apologetics, his, his defense. That word was used of the defense in a court of law. Now, this is not a court of law, but Luke uses that term because now this is the first of six times Paul will present a defense. From here to Rome... Paul will six times have to present a defense. And he defends not only his integrity, meaning what? He's not here causing riots. I'm not some Egyptian here trying to overthrow Rome. Okay? I'm not the source of these things. He, de- he defends himself and his Jewishness to the Jews here, and he defends the gospel message. And so what does he do? I, I, I'm, just, I'm not going to read it all. What he does is he gives his testimony. And this is going to happen several times. So you take some time to, le- to read it later. He shares his testimony. He talks about his former zeal, just like them. He, he, he tried to kill Christians. He opposed them. He talks about his miraculous, life-changing encounter with Jesus of Nazareth on the Damascus Road. He wants to be clear what Jesus he's talking about. It's the Jesus of Nazareth He talks about how that was a powerful experience for him. He talks about his commission. He uses the words, the the God of our fathers. Uh, That's the same phrase used of Moses when he was called. And he says, the God of our fathers also called me. He commissioned me uh, to preach to all the nations, all the peoples. He appointed me, he says, to see the righteous one the messiah himself who appeared to me this is what he's telling them his testimony he goes all all the way down he comes to verse 17 and i'll read this part because this has never been told us up to this point this is part of the testimony we've never heard apparently after paul was saved and ananias met him and the scales fell off his eyes this took place verse 17 when um Verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him. Who is him? The righteous one of God, the Messiah. I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and and watching over the garments of those who killed him. In other words, he's saying, not only will they not believe my testimony about you, but they're not going to believe my testimony about me (laughs) because they know who I was. And so he tells them, get out of Jerusalem. In a sense, what he's telling them is, you know what's happening to me today? This happened to me before. (laughs) And I came into the temple, just like I came into the temple today. And I came into the temple to do something right. I came to pray. And what happened to me then was I fell into trance. And the Messiah himself told me this kind of stuff was going to happen. And so he says, he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And Paul can't get another word out of his mouth. That's it. He said Gentiles It's over. He's saying the Messiah is sending him to the Gentiles. Here we go again. This man is in league with the wrong team. (laughs) He's on the wrong side of history. Let's get him out of here. And so they flood him. It just all blows up. Verse 22. Up to this word they listened to him and then they raised their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Tell us what you really think about him. Huh? And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, what a sight, man. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Paul's like, oh, it gets worse. (laughs) You see, the Romans didn't believe that anyone told the truth. And the only way to get the truth is you had to beat it out of them. So it was like standard fare. Arrest, beating. You know, that's just what they did. And so he thought, okay, this didn't help. Having him talk, it's just getting worse. Beat him up. You know, let's find out what he's really doing here. So they get ready. They stretch him out. They're getting him ready for whips. And Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? It's not. Now, when he was in Philippi, he, he waited until after he was flogged. Remember? He was whipped, and then he brought that up because he thought it would serve him there uh, better that way maybe here I don't know maybe here Paul's just I'm tired of this movie I'm just (laughs) I've seen this scene too many times so maybe here he just says, I'm going to get it done ahead of time and he says is it legal to flog a Roman citizen and no it's not and in fact it was very serious offense if you did now some people ask how would they know he's a Roman citizen I mean he didn't have passports you know so Well, two things. One, uh, they were little tablets that some of them carried around their neck with with a seal, and it was an official thing. And secondly, and we don't know if Paul had that, but secondly, to lie about your citizenship was very severe. Depending on where you did that, it was punishable by death. So he asked, is it lawful? They say they understand it's not. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. He's looking at the straggly, beat-up, bloody Jew. And it's like, look, it cost me a lot of money. How about you? And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Through his parents, city of Tarsus. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. We he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. I just want to reflect on this. Um, this. Paul's defense here as he stands before these people, seeks to speak the truth to them, it all gets worse. They blow their tops right. Ask yourself today, maybe you go and read this later again, his whole testimony there that I didn't read, and what stands out in your mind about Paul's comportment? at that moment Paul's comportment at that moment of such hostility here's a few things first of all he knew how the grace of God had touched him reached him and all he did was tell the facts he just told the facts about God's transforming power in his life can you do that (laughs) where were you when Christ found you wasn't on the road to Damascus but where were you you see where were you? What were you like? What were you doing? And how did Christ meet you and find you? That's all Paul's doing, telling the facts. And he was leading up, I'm sure, to get to the gospel, but never had the opportunity. Secondly, what stands out to me is that he, was, he knew his calling. He knew his role, and he fulfilled it. He said, I was appointed to do these sorts of things. You know, now, You have not had a dramatic calling to be an apostle like this man. But Peter does say to each and every one of you that you have been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So what have you been called to do? You've been called to tell people the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the greatness of God, the power of God, how he's worked in your life, the excellencies of God. What's it been like to be a Christian living under him and so forth? Paul knew his place. And he just simply fulfilled it. And, and so ask yourself, what specific opportunities God's given you to do that? Uh, unique to you. And then I want to end on this, and that is what stands out to me thirdly, and I hope you understand this, is his profound motivation of love for these people. Love for the lost, and not merely the nice lost. <laughs> love for the violently hostile opposing trying to kill him lost. That's tremendous, right? He had a love, a burning compassion and love and pity for these people. What would move, Paul, to talk to the murderous mob? I tell you, that wouldn't have been my first response, right? If I'm being carried out of there, I'd say, keep going, guys. Go, 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 go. Paul says, give me a chance to speak to this murderous group of people. That's love and compassion, you know. You see, Paul understood them. He understood them. He knew that he was once just like them. He knew that they thought they were protecting the honor and holiness of God by trying to kill him. They thought they were serving God and trying to kill him just like he thought he was serving God and making sure Stephen was killed. So he understood them. He knew. He said, I was one of whom. I was zealous just like you. I thought I was serving God. And Damascus Road not only changed Paul's beliefs, but it changed his heart. It changed his methods. It changed his manners. It changed him as a person. He could be Gentile, loving, meek. He would write to the church at Rome that he has anguish in his heart for the Jews because they don't have faith in Christ may the Lord give you and me such hearts and compassion for the lost. You know, it's not a natural thing to love people who are violently opposed to you or love people who are violently against what you believe and what really matters to you. It's not a natural thing to do that. It is supernatural to be able to not only not despise, but actually love them enough to tell them about the love of God. That's supernatural. And Paul was, Paul was doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And our love and compassion for the lost is something that, for me, I know it's your experience probably too, it fluctuates, you know? Sometimes it could be hot, sometimes it could be really cold, and you, you think more things like this, that serves them right. You watch the news and well, look at those bums, you know? Well, them and Ryder, I hate that group, or this group hates us, so I hate them right back, you know. And love for the lost, compassion for those who are up outside of Christ is something that that's fluctuates, and it's something, therefore, we should cultivate cultivate I just leave you with two suggestions on how to cultivate more love and compassion for people who are are lost who are out there who when you watch the news you feel something well up in you and it's you know it's more like rage than it is Paul saying brothers and fathers (laughs) first of all never forget their plight don't forget their plight. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God, that's you. What a glorious thing. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's terrible. I know to think of that, to meditate on that. It's not the fun thing to do. Uh, but keep before your minds the terrible reality of in entering eternity without Christ. That's what they'll face. you know. And I tell you, if you f- reflect on that with someone specifically, it will give you more patience and love for that person. Reflect on that. And the fact is that may actually be someone here today is listening to me or someone connected that what you face right now, were you to die, would be eternity without Christ. What, what awaits you is not eternal life or resurrection to life, but what awaits you is the condemnation and the wrath of God. All you do is turn to Him. Everything you need to be made right with God is in a person, and I am simply offering you a person. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, and He has atoned for your sin. He has been raised from the dead. Believe in Him, and you will enter eternity when the day comes with the promise and hope of eternal life. And then secondly, what to do, you know, meditate on Christ's sufficiency for you and His love, His love for you, that love that reached out to you and found you and know that God has that same love for the world. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. You were in that place, you were in that world, you were one of them, like Paul, right? Paul said, don't forget it. Remember what he said? I I, I alluded to it last week. This week I want to quote it. Uh, I finish with this. 1 Timothy 1, 15, 16. Paul writes about himself. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. What's mercy? Giving, receiving what you need, not what you deserve. I receive mercy for this reason that in me, in Paul's testimony, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. If you doubt, you doubt that if you love someone who opposes the gospel violently, you doubt that if you love them and tell them the gospel that they're savable, that God may save them? Paul says, look at me. God saved me, made me a trophy so that you all would understand the power and the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Let's pray.